Welcome to the Stack and Sats podcast presented by Force Space Mining. I am your host, Plumik Ovasic. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Austin Childress of ASIC Ninja. Austin is a repair tech and educator in the ASIC industry. In this episode, we discuss basic ASIC repairs, different levels of education within the industry, the vulnerability of Bitcoin, and much more. As always, this is not financial advice. We hope you enjoy this episode with Austin Childress. Super appreciative to have you in the Four Space Mining Studio today. Uh, I'm with Austin Childress of ASIC Ninja, um, traveling nomad, ASIC repair maestro. And yeah, really happy to have you here, Austin. And just wanted to give you a minute uh, to introduce yourself to the audience, uh, kind of let them know about what it is you do in the industry. Yeah, so I've been in this industry for a few years now, um, basically doing a lot of uh, ASIC repair. Uh, also been going around doing a lot of consulting and training for a lot of the major facilities as well as some of the uh, other independents out there. Um, also ended up becoming a Bitmain lecturer. I was doing that for quite a while until they just sadly recently shut that down. Uh, although, good thing is, is, we're still going out there doing a lot of training. So, um, but yeah, that's pretty much what I've been doing. Awesome. No, it's, uh, I'm really looking forward to this because you get to spend a lot of time with, you know, a lot of the big players uh, in the industry. You know, you spend a lot of time traveling. Um, and I really do want to get into that. Uh, but before we go there, I, I did want to just ask you kind of about how you got into Bitcoin and, you know, uh, how, how you got into repairing and where you are today. Yeah. So, um, I mean, with crypto in general, started a while back, um, even trading Dogecoin, you know, before it was a, a penny. Um, I even do remember uh, when I was younger, you know, kind of playing some StarCraft. I remember seeing some of the uh, tournament trophies, you know, the winner would get some Bitcoin. So um, it's kind of interesting to see how everything's kind of played out. As far as my background, you know, I went to high school and took some computer repair. Uh, I did go to college for engineering, although I never really completed it. But um, I did end up taking some robotics class as well while I was there. So I got a little micro soldering practice. Mm -hmm. uh, never actually used a heat gun until I started doing ASIC repair. So that was definitely a different learning curve in itself. Uh, That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you go from, like, it seems like, yeah, you have a big background into computers, robotics, you know, uh, repairing. How did you specifically get into ASICs? Uh, so, um, after a little time of having some like personal stuff that happened, ended up, uh, kind of dabbling, uh, back in Bitcoin. So I bought some S nines. Uh, so I was running those for a little bit. So I ended up, um, trying to flash one of the control boards. So, uh, with the S nines, you literally have to pull out of the case and flip over a jumper to, you know, flash it. So. During that time, I accidentally touched it on the case. I saw like a spark and I knew right then and there that, you know, that control board's probably fried. And, 
You know, so I started looking around and seeing if, you know, anybody did do repairs or, you know, if there's any info, which there's like little to none even out there. So just kind of self-taught myself and started dabbling and doing all the repairs right out of my apartment. Literally had like a full-on repair facility going on <laughs> right out of my apartment complex. So That's amazing. Um, did you fix that S9? Uh, not the control board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and then uh, people, people began to get to know you and they liked what you were doing. I mean, it seems like, it seems like, you know, when you do something like self-taught, um, there's a lot more learning curves that you're going through. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like you get to kind of find the nuances yourself because you're self-researching. Um, you can you can be a lot hungrier to find what that answer is. So it seemed like that turned around and did really well for you. Um, and you kind of got yourself the exposure. And like you said, if you were operating an entire uh, repair service out of your apartment, then I'm assuming that you had other people who were sending you their machines. Yeah, I started getting, uh, doing it more than just a hobby, you know, repairing them for friends and stuff. So I started um, advertising my services actually on eBay. Um, so I started doing those kind of repairs and kind of got overwhelmed with how much work <laughs> was available. Mm -hmm. um, so I quickly, you know, knew I needed to build it out and help grow and um, basically decided, uh, you know, I was going to help try to train a lot of the new techs in the industry, um, seeing that there's not many, you know, even available. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Why, why'd you pick, uh, you picked like education, you know, a lot of people would have been looking to work for, you know, a company kind of building a repair shop. Was it just, uh, circumstances that you ended up going towards, you know, educating new techs and educating others? I just kind of saw the whole kind of path of the industry, if you will. Um, I was seeing that, you know, there's not many people that can repair, not many shops that do it. Um, I saw eventually that people are going to start needing to learn how to do this kind of stuff, especially like the big hosting facilities and, I don't know, just like helping out as much as I can, helping people and um, just decided to take it and, and try to help out and train as many people as possible. And um, I know, uh, especially with just electronic repair in general, there's a huge need for that kind of, of skill, uh, not only for the Bitcoin industry, but as well as for, you know, your TV has electronics, your radio, your Tesla, you're driving. I mean, all this stuff is going to need, you know, technicians that even understand how they work. And um, it just seems that there's a huge lack of technicians right now. It's funny it, because as you're, you know, you're talking about the past here, but I feel like we're kind of still stuck <laughs> in this cyclical loop. We still need a lot of techs. We still uh, need a lot more education in the field. Um, and when you look at, 
you know, the people who are making ASICs, they're not from America. These are manufactured in China, Thailand, you know, from uh, engineers and people where English isn't their first language. Um, and it seems like you got to work very closely with uh, those people as well. Um, and I know that you mentioned you that, that you got to do like What's Minor and uh, Ant Minor Bitmain repair courses. Um, just want to know a little bit more about that experience and how you found yourself in that situation. Yeah. So, um, with Bitmain, I ended up, uh, getting my certification, um, over at core scientific actually, uh, actually also did my online training for the 17s, uh, online, uh, did that in my hotel room at the same time, taking the S19 training in person um, for micro BT. Uh, they ended up reaching out to me, uh, seeing some of my videos that I put out on YouTube. Um, so they can kind of see my skill and ask me to get certified and I help get my old shop uh, certified to do or authorized rather to do warranty repair for micro BT. Um, so I definitely saw that there was a huge need for this kind of, this education is not really a standard uh, for how you do these operations. Um, like, where do you start with step one or, you know, what can you do? What can't you do? Um, if you look at any other field, like electrician is a prime example. You have all these national regulations, codes, and stuff like that. And uh, in this kind of field, there's really <laughs> nothing, you yeah. know, and especially with, you know, working on power supplies that alone can be really dangerous. So not even having a standard on, you know, proper practice on how you should go about working on them is, is pretty incredible. No, that's something I didn't even consider, but yeah, when you're dealing with, you know, that strong of, uh, electricity in these machines, you know, there are safety standards and to kind of just like not even have a way, you know, to like navigate through that, that just seems like a really dangerous position to put people in. Yeah. I mean, even just plugging in and unplugging your miners can be dangerous. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised, you know, a lot of shops out there, they probably don't even have a, um, um, a defibrillator on, on site. So someone ends up getting shocked. <laughs> oh gosh. You're going to have to restart their heart. You know, you can be sitting there till the paramedics show up. Uh, you know <laughs> no totally those are those are the risks that have to be weighed what did you think about the uh, the micro BT and the Bitmain courses uh, I mean they were good little basic I'm um, just trying to get you to show you know basic understanding on how to use a test jig do diagnostic um, fortunately there's not you know too much in depth Kind of information, pretty much just how you do ASIC placement and how to hook up a test jig, and that was about it. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much more that goes into these machines, uh, from you know just even the start when you receive the machine. What should you do? Mm -hmm. You know, you shouldn't just plug it in. Uh, there's a lot of other things you should be doing. So, like what? <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, for example, you know, uh, if you don't know where the miner came from, you're going to want to probably flash the the firmware uh, with an SD card to make sure, you know, there might be viruses and stuff like that. Uh, make sure you're changing like the pool settings, stuff like that, because you don't know if they have a backdoor that, you know, when you plug in your miner, it goes to that pool. Well, that pool tells that miner to do this and go to your network and do that. And it's definitely possible. Wow. You can get that expansive with an ASIC? Technically. Yeah, I mean, that's something to consider. If you're getting this machine, even if it's from a trusted source, you definitely want to know you know, what you're doing and, like you said, to be able to flash the firmware. What about... Even doing basic maintenance, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, making sure your environment's a key environment for your miners to run in. Mm. Um, so then how did you go from, you know, working on the courses with these manufacturers into kind of developing your own system? It seems like, you know, you're definitely the kind of person where the gears were were spinning, you know, things were clicking in your head um, and you understood that there was a need for, for more, for more advanced levels of uh, understanding and then repair. How did it kind of, you know, all come together from there? I already knew I wanted to do the training even before I became a lecturer for Bitmain. That might have been one of the reasons that helped me uh, get you know, certified to do so was that I've already been doing training that I've been going out and training, you know, individuals and groups of people. So I had that experience, um, doing, you know, that kind of one-on-one training. Um, does seem like it takes a, a kind of a knack or, you know, um, certain type of person to be able to, you know, teach in general. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of technicians, including myself, are pretty introvert. So <laughs> trying to get them to get in front of people and explain what they're doing, they <laughs> don't want to have nothing to do with it. So, um, no, totally. Um, I'm thinking of one of our mutual friends, Jurgen. Um, he speaks very highly of you uh, when it comes to being a teacher. Uh, so if, 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 if you needed, some affirmation. Yeah, there's people out there who speak very highly of how it is that you go about your trainings and education. Um, and it's it's refreshing because you have different kind of aspects of repair in the industry. Um, you know, you have your standard, you know, repair shop where you're going to send the boards to. Uh, you're going to have technicians work on them, diagnose it, try to fix it and send it back. You know, you have mobile repair where you're going to go travel and you're going to go to places. Um, and then you have these courses where you can spend, you know, a week, two weeks, you know, intimately working with someone. Um, you know, what do you, what would you say is like, just like the best way to kind of get experience in repairing? Grab a cheap unit and start practicing, I'd say. Just even to get in like an S9 and tear it apart, rip some heat sinks off, start placing ASICs, mess around with the different components. Um, definitely reverse engineering is one of the best ways to learn how to do electronics mm. in general. Another way is obviously trying to build your own 
um, circuits. Um, you can study a book and stuff like that, but really doing the hands-on stuff is a little different. You can also have like, you know, a technician that's the best rework technician. He can't figure out what chip to replace. So he's sitting there replacing every component on the board, hoping it fixes it. And then got the other tech who's, you know, really good at diagnosing the board as a whiz, but can't replace an ASIC chip for the life of them. So Mm. um, just kind of that balance, I guess. Are you looking to kind of like develop well-roundedness, you know, out of the people who you're training? Uh, I mean, at least give a basic understanding. Um, A lot of people don't realize, you know, there's totally different levels in this that you can do. Um, whether you're a repair shop, you're a hosting facility, um, you're a procurement facility that, you know, buys and resells miners. Each one of these can kind of build out, you know, that kind of repair and maintenance line, just depending on their needs. Um, also think a lot of people don't understand that when they send it out for repair, what exactly is all included. They think that, oh, they're going to like wash it. They're going to make it, you know, magically look brand new. Um, but in actuality, what they're probably doing is, is they're not even dusting it off. They're just finding the component that's broken, redo it. Most of the time, not even clean the flux off that they left and pop the heat sinks back on and make sure it's hashing and ship it out. Um, you also want to make sure, you know, you're doing your regular maintenance, uh, cleaning your units on a regular basis. If you do have to clean your units on a regular basis, then you want to make sure that your environment's a good environment. Um, so you're going to find that happy median. Um, same thing with like procurement. You know, you just want to get it out the door quickly or do you want to do a full thorough job and sell it as like a more um, taken care of, more uh, fully refurbished unit rather than just like a quickly refurbished, we got it hashing, it's going to arrive DOA, sorry, but... <laughs> Technically, it was working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what are some kind of like environments, um, kind of, you know, uh, potential problems to be mindful of? Uh, well, um, obviously, first would definitely be temperature. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, not only does hot cause an issue, but also cold. Then even that, the uh, Electronics themselves, they don't like to go hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. They want to stay as stable of a temperature as possible. Mm. So even if you're restarting your miner or you're unplugging it, replugging it, you're cooling it down and then you're heating it back up. And all that heating and cooling is causing expansion and contraction. And over time, all of a sudden, next thing you know, one of your solder joints goes out and you have zero ASIC. Gotcha. So having a good stable temperature is ideal. Um, Another one would definitely be uh, like particulates in the air. So you want to make sure that, you know, you're filtering all that kind of stuff out. You don't want any kind of corrosives like salt. You're next to an ocean. You want to make sure that you're doing extra steps to make sure that salt's not getting into your units. Uh, Same thing with humidity. So you mix humidity with particulates, you get corrosion. Um, so you want to make sure your humidity is not only too high, but if it gets too low, you're also going to get static. So you want to make sure 
that you have that kind of Goldilocks zone for these things. Nice. Um, what about like the introduction of immersion or hydro? Is that going to potentially warrant some of these environmental issues or does that just open up a brand new can of worms for that environment? I'd say it's a little of both for sure. Um, it's a completely different system. So it's like a whole nother animal. Uh, same kind of concepts, you know, instead of a fan, you have a pump. Your fan or your pump goes out, you might end up overheating your unit and there goes your investment. Um, especially with some of these other ones, hydro and immersion, you know, even though it's kind of new to the industry, it's actually pretty old uh, when it comes to like electronics. Uh, even immersion was created um, just for the process of cooling transformers. Um, and they weren't able to necessarily sell it for transformer use because they didn't see, you know, upfront expense versus, um, you know, savings over time. Uh, government really didn't want to <laughs> expense it. So they decided to take that over to like data centers. And then now more recently, they're moving it over to crypto. Um, Is it kind of moving in a pretty similar trajectory as compared to other tech industries? Uh, yes and no. Um, I see that it's definitely makes it a lot easier to incorporate into regenerative heating, um, like reusing that heat. Uh, taking it and, you know, putting it in your hot water heater and then now you're taking a, you know, hot Bitcoin shower kind of thing. Um, you can't really do that very easily with air. Um, yeah, I mean, just really depends. I could create, you know, an air system that's way far superior than your immersion system. Uh, we, if you wanted to, I can create a good enough system that we can take the fans off and it'll just be, you know, forced air. Um, but just kind of got away, you know, cost and, um, the system itself and everything like that. No, that's interesting. You know, you're in the industry, I'm in the industry, uh, in the past year, I think we both noticed the turn towards Bitmain and these other manufacturers promoting their hydro systems, promoting their systems for immersion cooling. Uh, you see a lot of talk about it, but it's it's way more complicated than that and you know like you're saying it really depends on what it is you're trying to build out and you know what are the challenges you need to you need to uh, address in order to build that out properly um, one thing i do think is cool about uh, like you said immersion and hydro is that you know the ability to take this heat that's being produced um, and to turn it around into something else uh, something useful, keeping it cyclical within your own system. Ultimately, that's something I want to see more of just on a smaller scale. Um, you know, I don't know about the feeling of having like 10,000 ASICs blowing in your, in my face, um, but it seems, it seems like it's a little overwhelming, um, not only for the operations, but also for someone who is then going to have to come in and diagnose and fix, you know, and uh, kind of like deal with the mess at hand. Um, personally, I would like to see more education towards, you know, just someone like me plugging in an S19 and then 
being able to use it for my heating, being able to use it for my uh, water heater and all that. Um, but I did want to, I did want to go into your course a little bit. Um, it's proprietary, so we don't have to <laughs> talk too much about it. But you know, I know that you come up to Milwaukee and you've been working on your uh, beginning, your beginner course for ASIC repair. I just wanted to give you, you know, a little bit of time to to kind of share some information on the course and what you're looking to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, with uh, this basic course, um, try to make it so that way, no matter if you're like a beginner, um, just starting out, or if you're a more advanced technician, trying to learn some more advanced skills or kind of make sure you know at least the standards um, that should be there. you know, you can kind of get that grasp of um, from all the way from when the miner comes in, doing consolidation, tearing the unit apart, figuring out if it's the power supply, control board, hash boards, all the way down to figuring out exactly what the issue is, or at least the area of where the issue is, and then just being able to dive in deeper and, you know, do, do a repair. Also, like no pun intended, but create a spark <laughs> in someone's mind. Yeah. There's people anywhere from like hobbyists who are, you know, even GPU miners are looking into doing ASICs um, or doing, you know, wanting to get a job in the industry. You know, this could be a great way to come in and um, at least learn the basic skills. Uh, you know, even after just taking a basic class like that, you have big major facilities that only have one other technicians go and take a online bitmain class and say, oh, we're certified. We have all these technicians, but in reality, it's one guy who took an online class. Um, so I'm definitely really big on education. Mm. You should go out and try to get as much as you can uh, to try to hone your skills, mm. um, especially just getting stuck in you know your regular routine. Maybe there's some other techniques that you can come and learn to be able to, um, you know, make that process a little quicker or at least a little easier on yourself. Mm. What about like mentorship? You know, once you have someone complete the course, I just feel like they have probably like a thousand more questions that they want to ask you or someone else who is, you know, skilled in these repairs. Uh, how much, how much time do you spend you know, working with the classmates once the course is over? Uh, it depends on the student. Um, actually, how I started as I did a lot of virtual training. So I still do a lot of that where I would do like, you know, up to five different sessions. Um, just call and we do a little either video or voice call and kind of go over different things, uh, make it more, you know, custom tailored to their needs whether they want to focus on, you know, doing consolidation or working on what's miners or Canon or, you know, whatever their main focus is. Um, So I've been doing a lot of that. And I also include uh, with that uh, a lifetime kind of mentorship. So um, I have quite a few students that I talk to still on a regular basis. I'm sure they already expensed, you know, all their sessions, but they're still, you know, calling me up and, you know, trying to help them out as best I can. And um, as a teacher, I get to learn uh, quite a bit as well. So, um. No, you definitely, 
you definitely do take that time. I can know, I can uh, tell that personally. Um, when we had a repair uh, department going on at DLI, uh, Dan would call you a lot <laughs> uh, and kind of ask for your advice and direction. And I don't think there was a single time where you didn't pick up the phone. So like props to you, dude. That's <laughs> that's not easy. It's not easy to be plugged in 24-7 and to have to, you know, kind of be quote-unquote on call. Um, but in my opinion, it really speaks to to the passion that you have in all of this. When When you're working with like a shop or something, how do you kind of... How do you kind of get the people who are the techs who are repairing uh, to kind of like focus into something? You know, is it is it like once you learn this board, you can move on to the next? You know, what do you kind of recommend for for like a shop and how they would go about their business? Uh, it's more of like a preference, I'd say. Um, I know with my class, I like to teach it more of a broad. So it's not just for Bitmain or micro BT or Canon or gold shell or, you know, dragon mint or, you know, InnoSilicon or however many manufacturers are out there. Um, I try to make it more so that way you can take this knowledge and be able to apply it to any of them. So um, with at least having this basic understanding of how you do ASIC repair and go in there and, you know, diagnose it, troubleshoot it at least get to a certain point where you're like, okay, I know it's this, I know it's that, I've tried this, I've tried that. Um, what are some of those, what are some of those basic um, components that, that you're generally having to work on? Um, well, I mean, just about everything breaks. <laughs> so, uh, big slew of different things. Um, of course, different units are a little different. Every board's different. Same thing like every technician's different. Everybody learns differently. Um, just, I don't know, trying to get uh, at least a basic standard is what we've been, you know, trying to create. And, uh, what makes that difficult is it seems like it's like a rat race. Like you're, you know, you're trying to repair these machines. They're generally going to be, you know, like the, the gen before this new one that's come out. Um, the hash rate is going to keep going up for the network. Uh, the amount of machines you have to plug in is going to keep going up. You know, this is like a, an existential crisis within the repair industry and is it something that you think is is like sustainable do you think that that all these machines are going to get fixed or do you kind of see it as something that's just going to have to adapt as it goes along uh, i definitely has its ebbs and flows um obviously a technician has to get paid at least a minimum for what they're doing so they can't go and work on s1s because it's not going to be worth it um, so you just kind of got away, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. 
I don't know. You, long term, you think that? Uh, I don't know. With um, with what I've been seeing, you know, uh, obviously all things end up in the repair shop. So I even talked to some guys who are like, yeah, we came out with this revolutionary, you know, replaces GPU miners, you know, mines Dogecoin or whatever. And it's, you know, if one of the ASICs goes out, it'll still be hashing. So it's going to completely make it so it gets rid of your job. But I'm like, okay, well, you know, once five ASICs or more go out, I'm pretty sure they're going to want to fix when it doesn't have full hash rate. So, um, <laughs> but, um, as I see, you know, a lot of the newer stuff come in, it just seems like they're trying to stack more and more onto one board. They're trying to get more and more ASICs on there, trying to make it as efficient as possible. And just like anything else, they're just adding more and more breakpoints, more and more failure points. So, um, definitely see that, you know, it might end up coming to the point where a lot of these machines are just going to break, you know, before they even arrive. Um, cause there's so many different moving parts, uh, with these things now. So that, that's something I'm actually like thinking in my head right now. It, uh, the L seven, um, I feel like a lot of people who got L sevens, the hashboards were down before it, they even plugged it in, you know, something happened along the way. So yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from. You know, when you're looking to maximize efficiency, you might not have figured out the best way to protect that uh, piece of technology. Are there some, are there some like engineering kind of designs that you know of that manufacturers are working on to, you know, eliminate these breakpoints? Uh, there's just seems like they're trying to make it as efficient as possible. Um, a lot of them switched over already to like the aluminum backboards to try to cool off the board a little quicker, more efficiently. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, your, your guess is as good as the manufacturer's guess, <laughs> I guess. So you do a lot of traveling. Do you do you like that, or are you looking to, you know, maybe have a shop yourself? I do like doing the traveling. Um, you know, when I kind of got presented with this opportunity to do what I'm doing, I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, I do want to do traveling when I'm older. Um, I'm, you know as young as I am now going to be, you know, just getting older from here. So might as well take advantage of it while I'm, you know, able to, instead of going around, you know, doing the cane, trying to go up the steps of the pyramids, you know, at least I can do some traveling now and still get, you know, a career out of it, I guess. And definitely like seeing the new places and just learn a lot for sure. And you've generally been traveling in the U.S.? Uh, mostly U.S., uh, some Canada, some Mexico, even one out over to Thailand as well. So. Nice. What did you do out there? I did some training. So I went out there and um, actually got my uh, final Bitmain certificate for S19J Pros. Um, met a good buddy out there as well. So got some new friends and... 
just keep building that team. And yeah, as far as building my own shop, I mean, that's kind of been my goal since the beginning, but, um, at the same time, I know I can't do it all myself. So kind of just taking advantage of helping out as many people as possible and still staying independent, which kind of opens me up to be able to go out and help other people. A lot of people like to be as secretive as possible. And um, I don't know, did see a lot of, you know, during the last bull market, a lot more people were a little more open. You almost saw this, you know, people were ready to, you know, shake hands and start, you know, partnerships left and right. Let's help each other out. And then now you're seeing this bear market, even though it's kind of, you know, ups and downs, but almost seems like it's a lot more cutthroat these days. And, you know, um, I don't want to teach you anything. I don't want to share anything with you. I'm the best or, you know, um, someone posts something. I see it all the time on social media. They're like, yeah, I have this available if you need it. And then someone else is immediately like, oh, I have it too for this much price less. And it's like, you know, aren't we supposed to all be trying to, you know, help each other out and make this kind of ecosystem. Um, instead, you know, it's just kind of, uh, animal world. <laughs> no, I, I 100% agree with that. Like the energy of going to Bitcoin Miami 22 and, you know, some moments before then when we were in a bull market, it's exactly like you're saying, everyone was very open, um, very friendly and just preaching this idea of cohesion and we all need to work together and we need to figure it out it quickly turned into, you know, the bear market energy of people being like, I'm the one with the skills. I'm the one you want. You know, part of that, it, it seems like it's a marketing kind of ploy. Like you want to say the things that people want to hear. Um, so maybe in a lot of ways it's psychological and people are showing their true colors when they're saying things like, I'm the only one who can repair it or, uh, keeping it close like that. Um, so I, I really appreciate, you know, that you are trying to break some of that stigma and, you know, you're very well aware of it. I think a lot of us are in the industry. Um, and yeah, I think the only way we can kind of combat that is creating these resources and these pools, um, telegram groups where people can communicate and be open. Um, the secretive, feeling is understood. It's very much a part of crypto and Bitcoin in general. You know, you keep your keys close, you hold, you hold your personal belongings close. Um, but kind of like we're saying here, it's just not gonna result in enough work, uh, being passed around properly. Um, I did have a question. I don't know if you got to see, I think ASIC exchange, they, they talked about a mining disrupt, um, and they actually had the company there. Um, and it's this giant assembly line machine yeah. that can like, apparently like pull off every ASIC chip and put brand new ones on. And it's got, you know, the ability to test exactly, you know, where the voltage, uh, drop is happening and whatnot. Um, I guess I just wanted some more validity. Is that something that is actually like, is, is it real? Does it work? Do you know much about this <laughs> yeah, machine? They, they call them pick and place machines. Hmm. 
mean, that's how they build a lot of these circuits, circuit boards that we see everywhere. Um, so yeah, it is possible. Um, a little of ASIC exchange myself. So, uh, yeah, definitely um, a lot of big players that are seeming to come out of the woodworks, um, as well. A lot of them, you know, say that they've been doing this for a very long time or they have technicians that are all these certified and that certified and, um, I mean, I really, really don't know. Uh, from, from my personal experience, there's not many facilities out there that actually can do high volume properly. You know, they're all jumping over, you know, dollars to make dimes kind of thing. Um, pushing other clients out of the way and um, taking several months to even get to the board if they even get to it at all. And, uh, uh, you're seeing a lot of people making it to where it's like a huge MOQ. You know, you can't send it to me unless you got 100 units. Sorry. That leaves a lot of the people that the whole reason for Bitcoin, you know, we all started in our garage uh, running that one miner trying to figure it out. And um, that's what just kind of I want to help um, keep that kind of going and, and uh, spread that around. So that way, you know, uh, you know, our sons and daughters will eventually, you know, get their own home and buy their first Bitcoin miner and plug it in their garage. And next thing you know, they're the big, you know, micro strategy or, you know, marathon or riot or whoever else, you know. So we all started from that and built our way up. So I think we need to make sure we stick with those kind of roots instead of, you know, I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah. It's the humble beginnings. It should always be uh, reminded. What is, what is like, what is like a pleb supposed to do <laughs> in a situation like this? You know, what, what, what is your best like resource to, to vet, you know, a repair company um, are a lot of people SOL or, you know, do, do you, uh, do you have something that I'm actually trying to do some work on right now? So I've been creating kind of a ASIC network. I'm trying to get a lot of these facilities to work at least somewhat together. Um, so I'm going to be starting to go around actually, um, if you will, grade these facilities. Um, so we'll go out there and check out their facility, see exactly what they do, what they offer, you know, repair facility, for example, you know, what are you doing? Are you doing any deep cleaning or are you just doing straight up? We repair, you only do bit main or can you do what's minor too? Or, you know, you do hosting, how much are you charging? Um, do you have your own repair staff on site or do you an all third party shipping it out? Um, you know, all those kind of nitty gritty factors that you don't really hear too much from those facilities, let alone, you know, what kind of questions to ask. And so, you know, we can go out there and, and kind of give them a scale on the different facets that they're trying to provide and then kind of give them pinpoints on how they can increase those um, portions or facets in their, in their industry to help them grow and support and, and supply products and services, you know, to the, basically the end user. Is this something you have 
Have you started this yet or? Uh, somewhat. We've been collecting a lot of people who've been wanting to join the network. Uh, so we've been collecting all people's information and uh, just kind of creating a good list. Um, hopefully that'll be available to the public uh, shortly. Um, but eventually, well, yeah, we're going to be building this up to actually going out and, you know, any of those facilities that are willing to let us go in there with the camera and kind of see what, you know, behind the scenes, what's actually going on. Is it, you know, a, a hut in the back with no walls that they're plugging the miner into and, you know, they got, um, you know, uh, throwing the other ones out the door or whatever, you know, go there and actually see what they're doing and what their processes entail. Um, cause every shop's different. Every uh, facility is different. Mm. And so getting to know exactly what they're doing and how the, their processes are, um, definitely is important to be able to weigh, you know, the pros and cons between, should I go with this facility or that facility? Mm. Um, definitely could be a big game changer. Yeah, no, I think so too. What's like one horror story? Do you have like one, one moment that you went into a place and you were like, I can't believe what's going on here. Good majority of them, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Surprised, you know, even some of the big corporations, they don't even have their own repair staff. Like how are they even diagnosing their miners? I have no idea. <laughs> Just sending it off to other third parties and, those third parties are then, you know, taking six months to a year before they even get back. So then I can only imagine, you know, it's really all the havoc that's really being caused through that whole, you know, broken down kind of supply chain. Um, but horror stories, I don't know. I've seen <laughs> quite a bit of, of things plugged in, you know, running on the floor and, uh, and, you know, probably say one of the most common things that people do, even the big facilities, which makes no sense, is that they take, you know, a water curtain, basically a, um, a swamp cooler, if you will, and they take that swamp cooler and they put it directly in front of the miners. So they're basically spitting water right into the miners. Of course, it's cooling them down. So, you know, that's good. But uh, they're causing, you know, a huge chance of not only corrosion, but you know, short circuiting and uh, they're using tap water, not filtering the water. So then their water curtains are going to get clogged within the next, you know, six months or so. And just all the little, little things add up for sure. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's, it's kind of all over the place. It's not just the, you know, the operations of the facility in terms of how are they structurally you know, designing this, uh, it's also down to the safety issues. Um, that's, that's pretty alarming. Um, you know, when you think of pubcos, you think, okay, well, this is, this is a certain amount of legitimacy. These people are taking the public's money, you know, they're working with it. Uh, they're looking to expand on the millions, you know, that they're investing and in making, pretty alarming to hear that you know they could be missing some of these really uh really base level uh flaws you know in their operation so it's it also sounds like you're not only spending time 
working on boards and repairing ASICs, but you you seem to do uh, consulting of kind of a lot of variations. Is that something that you market when um, you're you little know, traveling? Bit. Yeah, a little bit. Mostly do a lot of training, but um, I do a lot of consulting as well. I can go out there and help um, everything from building up operations from the, you know, bare bones from scratch all the way to, you know, taking a look at your facility and seeing what can be changed here, little tweaks there that can, you know, at least make some major differences. Um, but yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about kind of just like a self education and kind of working on repairing as an individual um earlier you mentioned that you know a good place to start is just buying a bad board uh working on a bad board and kind of wrapping your head around it um what are some of like the basic tools that you know one should have if they're looking to begin diagnosing and repairing uh, definitely going to need a multimeter. So get a multimeter. Um, definitely would recommend like the Fluke 15B plus uh, multimeters because it's kind of what I've been teaching on. And a lot of people use that in the industry as kind of like a standard multimeter. That way, if I'm doing a reading, you'll get the somewhat of the same reading. Um, and a multimeter is like uh like an interface with just like a very low level of electricity running through it so that you can uh test these points or what exactly uh, just test this for like voltages and different things like resistance um to be able to go from like point a to point b and see you know what's going on between those two points to help you kind of diagnose and help troubleshoot it further. And that's where you're looking like for those voltage readings, like 0.8, you know, to here, 1.8 to there. Yeah, being able to use it to, you know, even just test your power supply voltage, for example. Mm. Um, yeah, a few other tools. Variable power supply would be another good one. Um, yeah, a lot of the stuff's pretty basic tools. No solder flux, tweezers, heat gun, you know, all basic stuff. Um, yeah, even being able to do basic troubleshooting and being able to repair it, not only, you know, mostly doing it remotely is kind of how I like to teach because um, honestly, you want to keep it as far away from the repair bench as possible. You, if at all possible, you don't want that thing even touching the bench. Gotcha. Um, there's always that chance, you know, just like even surgery, there's always a chance that you might not, you know, come out. So um, that's why being able to go in there and, you know, looking in the firmware, updating firmware, using different kinds of firmware, um, seeing what's going on behind the scenes, checking kernel logs and stuff like that. Um, it's even a basic understanding can make a huge difference. Sure. So it's almost like, you know, the moment that you have to put that board under stress, you know, it needs to be necessary. Like if you're just putting that board under stress and testing it 
and running electricity through it, you know, on the workbench, like you might either damage something onto the board or damage yourself. That's always a possibility. What about testers? You know, we, we hear a lot about testers. Everyone's always looking to sell you the tester. What is uh, the functionality of the tester and its importance in ASIC repair? Uh, well, I mean, when I first started, um, I actually used just a regular control board with stock firmware. So I'd literally go there and hit the restart button. Um, of course, back then, the hash boards didn't get so hot that it would start frying all the chips if you didn't, you know, cool it down fast enough. But, um, you know, I just created my own little fan deck and did the testing. Um, sorry, we were going with, with the, uh, the question there, but oh, I was just, uh, just wanted to kind of explain some of these components in more layman's terms. Yeah, so I mean, as far as testers, I mean, they're used to kind of run um, voltage through the the hash board itself. That way, you can test different test points and try to, you know, pinpoint exactly where you know I call it a suspect, you know, might be trying to try to find that actual culprit, and hopefully, you know, you do eventually replace the right component or do the right thing to it. Um, yeah, I mean, the testers, they're all different they all do different things not a single one does the same um i try to be as unbiased as possible when it comes just about you know everything so um even with like the testers uh one of them you know can uh, do this one of them can do that so you just kind of want to see exactly what best fits you maybe you might need one that's like cheaper or um, maybe you want to be a little more diversified have more tools in the arsenal um, you're working on one hash board and find out that, you know, you can't figure it out. So you put it on another jig and now you find something that you weren't seeing from the other one. Um, you know, some are faster, some are a little slower, some have to be connected to the internet, some have to be, you know, hooked up directly through Wi-Fi. Um, some are standalone, some can test power supplies, some can't. Some are only bit main only, some what's minor only, some do all makes and models, some do some models. And, um, where Where is the universality in all of this? Like, you know, in your opinion, why is it all so, you know, like almost like scattered, it seems like? Ah, <laughs> uh, just kind of difficult, especially since like there's so many different models let alone manufacturers. So each hash board runs differently than the next. So um, creating that kind of thing and uh, making it a little bit more um, user-friendly as well. Yeah, I mean, they even have uh, manufacturers have their own test fixtures as well. So uh, you have that choice of doing, you know, manufacturer or third party or use them both. Um, ironically enough, none of the testers does exactly what the manufacturer tester does, which is like a full nonce test. So the only way that you can do a full, what, what's called a PT2 test, okay. you can only do that with the manufacturer's test jig. 
And some of them do somewhat of the same thing, but they don't do fully what that does. And what is like a, like a full PT2 test? What does that all entail? Uh, so they separated it. So you have your like PT1, uh, which is like just find the ASICs. Uh, basically just sends a signal. Hey, are all you, all you guys there? Yeah, we're all here. Um, and then you have PT2, which does that. But once it does find all of them, then it's like, okay, let's pump some amps through this thing. Let's like really stress test it. Um, and then it spits out like what's called a nonce. So it's in, in essence, it's kind of like um, performance, like it's level of performance. And so um, that PT2 just kind of shows you which chip is performing at what level. And that way you can know, okay, well, it will still hash, but it failed PT2. Um, that's just kind of what it does is it kind of shows you exactly which chips are performing at what kind of level. That's getting to like a little bit more like advanced kind of work. Yeah. You normally would use that. Um, a lot of, a lot of shops will just skip that and they'll just go straight to age testing. Uh, but if it fails age testing, then you can bring it back and put it on the PT2 test and see, okay, maybe this one chip is causing that frequency kind of issue. It's all great stuff. I mean, I've only been in this industry working and learning and, and taking for about 16 months. And for me personally, it started off as just like wanting to learn more about finance and exactly like why Bitcoin, why crypto, uh, you know, is a more pragmatic solution compared to the fiat system, compared to the banking systems that we have. But it quickly developed into kind of a love and appreciation for wanting to learn it all. Um, so I'm always, I'm always humbled when I get to sit down and talk to someone who is really, you know, knee deep into what it is that they're doing. And when it comes to repair, I just think that we just need so much more education so much more uh, communication so even if a lot of these things are flying over my head um, i'm hoping that they're they're also creating the sparks that are being created in my head which is well now i want to go and learn more um and definitely appreciate you sharing your expertise and kind of talking through some of these things what's what's something that that you're looking uh, kind of to just like, uh, keep what's something that you're looking to, uh, ride in the future and kind of push the momentum towards, uh, in the ASIC repair industry. Ooh. Um, well, uh, just kind of trying to, uh, make this kind of a more equal playing ground, if you will, in the industry. Um, it's actually kind of the main reason I got into this field. Uh, it incorporates a lot of um, ability to kind of get to that financial freedom, kind of per se. Um, it definitely already leveled the playing field. Now you're seeing a lot of big players come in, which is kind of making it not so fair. Um, so that's pretty much the main reason that 
you know, I even got into this is, is I want to make sure that, you know, Bitcoin in itself is going to be what it should be for my kids and their kids. Um, so yeah, I've just been trying to create this really big ecosystem uh, within the industry and be able to help, um, you know, supply all the different facets that are kind of needed and um, kind of make sure that's more safe because we're getting very scarily close to an ability for these huge facilities to be able to do a what's called a 51% attack. Um, in fact, it already happened with Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. So um, it's very theoretically possible for it to happen with Bitcoin. Could you elaborate more into uh, the Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, the 51% attack? Yeah, so someone, I don't even know if they even figured out who, but someone or some people um, figured out that they had enough hash power at the time um, to mine Satoshi Vision and change um, what the outcome was. Because once you have a good majority of the mining ability, you can tell your computers, okay, your Bitcoin is now in my wallet. Um, so that's pretty much what happened with the Satoshi vision. Mm. Um, just wasn't enough miners protecting the network at the time. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting to where we have these huge facilities that have, you know, thousands and thousands of machines. What's preventing them from teaming up together and, you know, easily doing that same thing that's that's pretty much why i don't like to recommend you know this pool or that firmware or, you know if everybody is using the same pool and the same firmware and is mining on the same exact miner and you know they're using the same internet and uh you know it's just a matter of time before someone can easily just figure out you know how to hack that little easy system and there goes everybody's bitcoin so yeah there's definitely this, you know, you, you unraveled a really good point there. Um, you know, I'm over here asking, why is this complex? Why isn't this universal? Why isn't this centralized? Well, maybe we don't want it all centralized. Maybe that's the entire point. Um, you also hit on something that I personally dislike as well, which is PubCo mining uh, facilities. I, I'm worried about it for the same reason. You know, people mention, oh, it's fine. You know, as long as one pool doesn't have more than 50, you know, it doesn't have 51%, uh, of the control. Um, but it's beyond that. When you look at these companies that are, you know, with X, you know, insane amounts of hash rate power, and you look at how much Bitcoin they're producing, um, you also have to look at what they are in terms of being a burden to the network. Um, how many companies have we seen in the last six, seven months that have had to file for bankruptcy? They all took out giant loans. They couldn't pay the loans. Now they have to default. They have to sell machines. Um, it creates more competition when it does because... Ultimately, I feel like Bitcoin wrecks you if you get to a certain point 
you know, it's kind of like the Icarus effect. A lot of these companies are flying really close to the sun um, and thinking that they're going to be, you know, strong enough to survive that. Um, it is something that really concerns me, though. And I just, I would like to see it kind of like you're saying, come back down to the pleb level. You know, when you talk about Bitcoin 9, 10, 11 years ago, you're talking about kids with computers mining off of USB sticks and stuff. Um, ultimately, if you're trapped in this institutional kind of corporate idea of Bitcoin, we might lose exactly what Bitcoin is supposed to be for. Yeah, it's actually getting kind of sad where it's, where it's coming to because you're seeing to the point where in order to like just a regular person wants to start mining Bitcoin. Well, in order to be profitable, they have to go and spend thousands of dollars on a machine and then they go plug it in to find out that their electricity rate isn't low enough and now they're not able to be profitable. So now they just spent thousands of dollars on a useless machine that they can't plug in because they're going to be at a loss. Then you have these bigger facilities that have access to the cheaper power. So then they're the ones mining all the Bitcoin, not leaving it available for, you know, um, decentralized other people. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's alarming. I don't know why more people aren't talking about it. You know, may, maybe people just want to focus on, on the hype and adoption and pushing forward. But yeah, these are definitely some things to keep an eye out for. Being a little bit more mindful of our time here and did have a couple more questions for you. I know we've touched on it a bit, but I just wanted to kind of ask you when you, when you first, you know, discovered crypto um, from your perspective, it wasn't just Bitcoin. Like you mentioned, it was Doge, it was other ideas. What was it about crypto and Bitcoin that first time that really clicked for you, that really had you fascinated? Ah, <clears throat> uh, it's kind of the whole cycle of how Bitcoin kind of works, I guess. Um, you know, most people, when they first even hear or think about it, they look at it like it's, you know, a stock. Like, I'm going to buy it low and sell it high. It's a stock. And then... You know, even though it's technically a currency, so that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Um, from there, you know, you're starting to figure out, okay, you can do mining, for example. So you go and you buy some units, and it's basically like buying, you know, the stock at a discount, in a sense, mm. um, if you do it right. <laughs> uh, you know, and then you go in even further, and then you have the companies that are, like, supplying you know, the spot for you to plug it in or selling you the miner, or, you know, teaching you how to fix it. Or, um, so I don't know, just the whole um, ability as well, how it just has so many different facets, like that it's endless. You want a job, like you have a job. There's so many different avenues that need to be filled in this industry. It's ridiculous. I don't think there's enough of us. Yeah. Um, especially even though it's, you know, especially the, the repair side of it's 
completely transferable to all other kind of electronic repair. So after learning how to do, you know, ASIC repair, I can go crack open a TV and be like, oh, I know what that is. I know what that is. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like for you, it was just, uh, it was everything and how it kind of all ties in together. And I think ultimately that's that's where most of us are in this in this long journey. Um, it's a, It's like a self-discovery journey. And the more you dive into one aspect of it, the more you realize how it's all interconnected. And then you take a step back from that, you know, outside of the industry itself. And you realize it's not the industry, it's the world that's actually connected this way. So when you hear people kind of like make these outrageous statements that Bitcoin can fix this and Bitcoin can solve that, they're not just like blowing it out of, you know, like hot air there, like you're saying, there is a deeper understanding and a connection to all of it. Um, so I definitely relate in a lot of ways to what you're saying. It was, it was one thing after the other and kind of just wanting to get this bigger understanding of it all. Um, you, you also mentioned that this is something, you know, repairing ASICs is something that is applicable to anyone who's kind of working on electronics um, do you see any like move towards bringing in people from other kind of like tech industries, other kind of like electronic repair industries? Um, do you see a push towards that in ASIC repair? Well, you're actually seeing a lot of that happening right now. Um, a bunch of different kind of shops, cell phone repair shops, um, even auto repair shops. <laughs> Um, are getting into this. Uh, yeah. That's, that's cool. Man. Even our military is getting in on it. So, yeah, everyone is secretly, you know, Bitcoin's biggest hater and their biggest fan. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what's, uh, what's on the agenda for you? Do you have any more courses coming up that you're going to be working on? I've been working on a online course uh, for quite a while now. Um, getting pretty close to getting that released. Um, we're also doing a more advanced level training coming up. That's here in Milwaukee? Correct. Nice. Uh, I'm also open to try to open up a lot more of these kind of shops. And we're trying to work with a lot of the different facilities to make it happen. Um, yeah, I'm also getting, uh, uh, or I have available a lot of the, um, equipment and tools, materials, rework stations, kind of like starter kits available. Um, uh, also getting a lot of the parts, uh, stockpiled. Um, so I'm getting a lot of the lists together for all the different makes and models of boards and making it really easy so that way if you want to work on like a s19 for example you can come and just buy this kit um, that's some other stuff i've been working on and uh, same thing with the network as well so just trying to get a list of all the main vendors that are you know willing to you know say that they're you know in business and just try to connect all the dots for everybody um 
So it can be really frustrating. I don't understand why there's people that are, you know, mining over in, let's say, California, and they're shipping it over to Florida when there's, you know, like several technicians available there locally that have availability. And yet the ones, you know, not saying over there is booked out, but just as an example. Sure. Um, you know, so they're waiting for months for it to ship and then months for it to get fixed. And then who knows if they'll even see it. So um, same thing with buying equipment. It's really difficult to know where to go or if it's even safe. You're thinking you're getting a deal. It sounds legit. And the next thing you know, your money's gone and you're like screwed. So it's definitely a lot of dark and shady <laughs> Uh, individuals and company companies out there that you know hopefully we can make it a little more light to that and, and make it a little bit more of a safe environment for everybody I agree we can't just rely on you know hardware market verification um, things like that you know are susceptible to uh, attacks as well um, <coughs> you see a lot of impersonators in the industry um, and it's really great to hear that uh, you're thinking about that as well, that it's not just something tied directly to, you know, like a ASIC salesman or something. It's, you know, we're all aware that these are, these are issues that we need to fix. Um, and I'm, I'm with you. It's up to all of us to kind of get that moving. Is there a place where our audience can kind of keep up with you and keep up with uh, your courses and all the work you're doing? Uh, yeah, you can find me on just about any social media. I'm still using my old um, handle, Crypto Miner CHR. Um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, you can kind of follow me that way. Uh, also, another best way to get a hold of me has always been a phone call. Uh, I get so many messages every day, so going through them all, I try to do the best I can, but sometimes I miss messages and or don't really have time to get back. So, yeah, just a regular good old phone call works good for me. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely make sure to throw your links in the video um, and as well as the audio versions uh, just so that our audience can reach out and keep in touch. Um, one more time, I just wanted to express my gratitude. Super thankful to have you on here, Austin. Um, and, yeah, looking forward to what's in store for the future wishing you luck on your endeavors and uh to future success definitely glad to be here <laughs>